Welcome to Literary Friction on NTS. I'm Carrie Plitt, here as always with my co-host Octavia Bright. Hi, Octavia. Hi, Carrie. Today, our show might sound a little different, and that is because we are coming to you live from the Cheltenham Literature Festival, one of the big three book festivals in the UK. I think I just made up that term. I like it. But I'm going to go with it. I think it's true. Yeah, I think it's true. Edinburgh, it's hey, deal. Cheltenham, it's a big deal. And we are so happy to be the podcast in residence this year. So, Octavia, do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about what we're going to be doing today? I do, but I also feel like we should tell them that we're not just coming to them from Cheltenham, we're coming to them from the back of a car in Cheltenham currently. Do you think we should tell them that? I do. I feel like it needs to be said. We're in the backseat of Carrie and Eddie's car. It's great. <laughs> Windows are quite foggy. They are And foggy. it's getting dark. So My we're, we're rushing through this. <laughs> but it's we, very quiet. It is very quiet in the car. That's why we're here. It's a, it's a kind of an ideal recording uh, situation. Um, but we're going to bring you a, a bit of an unusual show today. And it's going to be in three parts. So first you'll hear the interview we did with Karen Haveline and Eleanor Tom um, for an event we chaired with them called A Body of Work. They've both written really powerful books about endometriosis. And then we also chaired an event with Ayelet Gundagoshin and Rosie Price called Me Too in Fiction. Um, and their books both explore sexual assault. Uh, so we hope you enjoy that. And then the third part is made up of a bunch of Vox Pops that we did with all kinds of writers that we managed to bump into in the green room and ask them to make... Slash a cost. <laughs> oh, yeah, maybe a cost. No, I think we were gentle. No, no, we were, yeah. <laughs> um, we were nice. We asked them to recommend books that they've been reading recently, and we have a really great selection of things that, that everybody mentioned, really diverse and inspiring list. And all recorded on the Zoom mic that we're speaking into right now. Yeah, which was lent to us by the very wonderful Jesse Roger. Jesse, thank you so much. Yeah, and it has something called a dead kitten on the top. It does have a dead kitten on the top. It's not a mammal. It's made from plastic, fiber. Don't know. I don't know. It's very, it's very cute though. It's very fluffy. I would it? wear it as some sort of hat. Yeah, a mitten. It looks like a kind of mitten. It also makes the quite aggressive hardware underneath look a bit less alarming when yeah. you shove it in somebody's face cute. it is quite cute yeah yeah so anyway we're we, having fun we are we love our zoom we love our dead kitten um and we, we love all of you yeah <laughs> so first we will start with our interview with karen and eleanor which we began by introducing them Karen Havlin is a writer and translator from Bergen in Norway, um, and she uh, has a bachelor's degree in French literature and gender studies from the University of Bergen and the University of Paris Sorbonne. She completed her MFA in fiction from Columbia University in May 2013. Her work has been published both in Norwegian and in English, and her first novel, Please Read This Leaflet Carefully, about one young, one young woman's experience with chronic illness, was published simultaneously in the US, the UK, and Norway in spring of this year, and that's the book that she's come to talk to us about today. It's fantastic. Eleanor Tom was born in Sheffield, England. She graduated from Manchester University with a BA in film and theater. On graduation, she created the award-winning all-female sketch group, Lady Garden, who toured the UK circuit extensively, appearing on TV and radio, and were Edinburgh Fringe Festival favorites. In 2013, she wrote and performed the critically acclaimed character stand-up show, I Am Bev. 
I'm interested to hear more about that, so I might ask you. She has had endometriosis for 23 years and tired with the bleak and dry writing about the condition was inspired to write her first book, Private Parts, part memoir, part practical life guide. So as you can probably tell from these bios, both of these women have written really powerful and different books about um, the experience of having endometriosis. So we're going to be talking to them today about that, but also more generally about illness and literature, writing about the body, about the female body. So I think it's going to be a really fascinating discussion. I guess I might start by asking both of you. Both of these books are about endometriosis. And I have to say, reading both of your books, I learned a lot more about this condition. So I wonder if you could just talk about what it is for anyone who doesn't know enough or wants to know more about it before we get into the discussion. You want me to start? <laughs> okay. Uh, it is when the uh, cells similar to the lining of the womb grow on the outside of the womb and they can uh, cause adhesions, they can stick organs together, uh, it can cause pain, extreme fatigue, um, nausea, uh, sometimes infertility for some women, sometimes painful sex. Um, and it, the symptoms can be just while you're having a period and they can be more often than that for some women as well. Um, I think that covers it. Yeah. yeah you really get a sense in the book of the exhaustion of being uh, in constant pain, essentially. Um, and I wonder if that, like, was that a cathartic thing to write out? Yes, definitely. Um, when I started writing it, um, it was right after I'd come to New York for my MFA, and I had, uh, I didn't really have anything in English that I could uh, submit to workshops, so I had to write a lot really quickly. So that I always helps clarify yeah, the mind. A lot. And I didn't so I couldn't like hesitate for a second and I when I started writing this stuff started to bleed through very quickly. And it was actually a very liberating, wonderful experience for me to just sort of uh, give in to writing about pain and dark thoughts and all the things that um, nobody wants to hear about. Which actually in my life leading up to that my my life in the years before had sort of shrunk until it was almost only the things that nobody <laughs> wants to hear about. So uh, it was very good for me to just write about the pain in great detail and write about all the anger and stuff in great detail and just like let it go. So I can imagine. Eleanor, did you feel similarly? <laughs> uh, I did. I think it was about getting control for me. That's what it felt like. Um, so having not talked about it for 23 years, I then wrote a book about it. Um, and so for me, it was about getting control of that time and how the disease had affected my life. So I kind of, I say it's like doing therapy on speed. It was a five month process and I was just like, oh God, I'm dealing with all this stuff and I'm dreaming about it and I'm thinking about it all the time. And um, it was cathartic, but I, don't, I think interestingly, I thought it would disappear once I'd written it. And to find that I'm still living with it day to day is quite interesting for me, is that you go, it's not excised by writing about it. But yeah, it was a cathartic experience to it. Talking to you, know, you both as writers and as people living with, with this condition, and the power of language is so vital, right? The mm. way that um, we talk about relating to illness as like a fight or a struggle mm. is interesting, and especially yeah. in the context of women and women's pain. I mean, can you, I wonder if you have any thoughts to share about that, both of you. I think we kind of need new language all the time for pain. I mean, I don't know, I feel like every time I, I try to write about it, or I just, I'm writing and then I write about it because it's happening <laughs> in my body. And I always, every time it's like I'm reinventing the 
wheel. Like I have to start from scratch. But it's like, I kind of have a, almost like a bodily urge to describe it again, like it's never been done. And so it's like an ongoing thing. And I think, yeah, we do need, particularly with the doctors who's not finding anything, that's the one you really mm. need to get through to. <laughs> yeah. I've, there is a bit in the book about that. Um, and I think for me, I realized after a very long time and a lot of resistance that with chronic pain, which I don't like the word, I've used persistent instead. Okay, that's uh, great. Because it feels negative. Chronic feels like, oh, it's heavy and um, people can use what they want, but I, I prefer persistent. Um, but what I realized was that a lot of it is about fighting and getting through it. And actually with persistent pain or with persistent illness, you don't get through it. It's about living with it. So that language is available for illness that's acute, but not for anything that's more long-term. And I think it's very difficult for loved ones to see people that are ill and not get that. They just don't get it. I mean, even my mum will still send me messages now going, I've read this thing about this behavioural therapy thing that works, or there's a vitamin I've found that will work. And you go, it's not going to work, and it's 23 years, and we know this, and I love you, and I'm sorry, but, you know, it's not going to work. Um, it might help but it's not gonna fix anything. And I think that's a really hard thing for people to get their heads around. And I think, like you say, it's because people are lucky enough to be, on the whole, not ill. Um, so that's the thing with persistent illness, I think. Yeah, yeah, and I think blame comes up in both of your books as well, that mm. that, that kind of response to illness is well-meaning. Yeah. It makes you feel as though you haven't done enough. You haven't enough. done enough, yeah. Um, yeah. And I think your character feels that in the novel as well, doesn't she, that, yeah. that people are trying to help her, but they end up making her feel guilty about not being able to be, quote-unquote, cured. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think sometimes... I mean, I think this is actually a, a really big part of the burden of chronic illness or, or, you know, not just chronic illness, disability or something, I guess, um, that you have to deal with other people's uh, feelings mm. about it, particularly if you have a, an invisible illness, maybe. Um, and for some people, it's like it just does not compute. <laughs> I was... I, uh, I mean, I have a million stories like it, but I, I sometimes have wheelchair assistance when I travel because I to save energy. And um, this woman who was pushing my wheelchair at the airport recently, she was like, "What happened to you?" And then uh, she was like, "Oh, I'll pray for you. You just have to open your heart to Jesus. Mm -hmm. he'll, he'll cure you." I'll, she just could not, like, I tried to just be like, oh, thanks. But um, she was like, oh, no. She, like, came after me when we parted ways, like, pray, you'll be cured. <laughs> like, she just could not, she could not stand that it wasn't, uh, like, nothing I have is ever going to be cured. Like, it's, it's okay. Like, just don't, it's fine. Like, you don't have to fix me. Just don't <laughs> freak out. It's that fixing culture, isn't it? It's that yeah. thing that says... There's always a way to resolve something now. We can always throw money out. We can always see another person. You just haven't met your person yet. Yeah. Um, and that means you spend thousands of pounds if you're ill, trying to find somebody, your person that will help. Yeah. Um, and it's not that that stuff doesn't help on, on a day-to-day. -day. I think the kind of alternative medicine and stuff like that is quite useful. Um, but it doesn't fix the problem. And I think that people just can't. Yeah. It's too hard. It's too hopeless. It's a dead end. It's too, too, too difficult, I think. So it can feel a little bit like they're saying... I cannot stand the way you exist in the world, yeah. which is a very exhausting message to receive. And you have to like m mitigate their feelings about it. It's like, and do you think it comes from their fear, their fear that that that's a possibility for for a human? You know, I think that's definitely part of it. 
And I think, I mean, it is difficult. It's really hard, particularly to be in a close relationship with someone who has a, a long-term illness. It's really hard to be close to someone who's suffering. It takes a lot, and uh, I have nothing but, you know, <laughs> love and gratitude for people who do that. But it's, and I think actually, the people who are very close to someone can fall victim to the same kind of thing. Like they'll have to answer the same. Uh, comments. Well, you explore that very delicately in, in the novel. Your lead character, Laura, I call her Laura with my English accent, but That's it's funny, Laura. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Laura, she has a series of relationships with very different kinds of people, right? And, and as the book, uh, as the narrative unfolds, although actually this was a question that we wanted to ask you as well, it unfolds backwards, which is an interesting decision. Um, but we meet these different figures in her life who love her and care for her but, and the ways that their relationships evolve. Um, and I, and I wanted to ask you why you wanted to show her in these different relationships and at these different stages. Um, with, with the structure, it was important for me to uh, change the typical way that we hear about illness. Uh, when I was little, I was always looking for, I was like sniffing out any mention anywhere of anyone uh, who was ill. And all the stories were about people who um, died or were cured, and uh, and often they were very like selfless and like they were n never the main character in the story. Mm. So that was important to me, and also because chronic illness doesn't have the satisfying uh, narrative uh, structure of maybe like a spectacular injury that that you heal from. Like it's bad and then you get better and it's and everyone's happy and everyone learned a valuable lesson. So, but chronic illness is more, it's cyclical and often you have to relearn the same lessons. And maybe if you're dating different people, you have to relearn the lessons with them. And you think you figured it out and then, oh, suddenly it's happening again, but you're coming at it from a slightly different angle. And it looks different when you're 20 and when you're 35 and it looks different in different kinds of relationships. So that felt very central to what I wanted to explore. I think there's a thread of a real hope through the novel, which is the ice skating and the, the elements that break up the text of, of different, there's a, a series of different ice skating uh, descriptions of different moves in figure skating. And the way that you thread that through the narrative feels like it, it creates this constant, I don't know, relationship with hope and with what a body can do and the fact that your character gets the chance to ice skate at this very critical moment, in the, in, well, it feels like a critical moment in the narrative, right, where she's able to experience her body with the freedom that she often isn't allowed, um, is a very hopeful Thank moment. You. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I enjoyed it. I, what I also found hopeful was, obviously, you are writing about this character who has a chronic illness, but she's not defined by her chronic illness. It, she's mm. like r a real person mm. and she has a child and she has different relationships and it's not something that she's thinking about all the time. She's like thinking about whether her ex-boyfriend, you know, is going <laughs> to see her on the street. And and that felt really important actually that it wasn't a it wasn't a book that was just about what it's like to live with chronic illness. It was mm. a book about what it's like to be a person. And actually, yeah. I felt that way in both of your books, that it's about sort of reclaiming this humanity, in, even in the face of, of having a condition that mm. you have to live with all of the time. I think for me, that was one of the things that meant I didn't talk about it for a long time, was I thought it would define me. And I didn't want people to shrink me down to just that. Um, 
and especially as a comedian, I didn't want it to be seen as a sort of weakness, which I've had to deal with in, and I've, I've written about in the book. But um, yeah, I think that idea that it's not your main identity, but it is part of what you are, I think is a really hard thing to come to terms with, because again, it's that fighting, you're resisting it, you're saying there must be a cure, it's not mine, I don't want this. Um, so I think that idea that you have to live with something is really important to share with each other, I think. Yeah, I felt that as well. There's a yeah. whole life around that. Yeah, it, it can feel sometimes like, like we were talking about earlier, that um, people, sometimes people just want the story to end. They mm. want it just, but if you are the person with the chronic illness, like you can't wait for it to end. You have to live your life while you have it and you have to, it, it takes uh, courage to do that. And I feel like that deserves some <laughs> recognition. And let's talk a little bit more about the condition of being a woman in pain, because mm. I think that comes yeah. in, up in both of these books. And, and as you mentioned earlier, it takes a long time for people to be diagnosed with this mm. condition. And um, I don't think it's a coincidence that it's partially because women suffer from it. Um, uh, I don't think that's a coincidence. No. <laughs> no, I think you both make that clear. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that sort of what, what you think maybe needs to change about you know women, how women are treated in society, women's experience with doctors, um, because I think you both go into that in, in your books. Um, I think it was no surprise to me that I was a feminist, but writing it, I was like, oh, I'm, I'm very angry about this. <laughs> Uh, and I'm really angry on behalf of people that are like me at 17 when I was diagnosed, having the same experience again. I couldn't see how it had changed enough since I'm 34 now. So I, I can't see how it's changed enough for it to be different for somebody of that age now. And that makes me very cross. Um, and also the, the dismissal from doctors. That I, I constant, the messages I get are quite often from people saying, I can't get someone to listen to me. And I, I, it makes me very upset and angry and proactive about doing stuff about it. The most shocking thing for me was when I spoke to the researchers and they were talking about the lack of funding and um, they used the cost model that's in America, the NICH, which is the funding body in America. And if it's as common as type 2 diabetes, per patient they get $36 per diabetes patient to under a dollar for endometriosis. Yeah. So wow. you just the figures are there. It's, it's something needs to be done about that. There's no one putting money into this. It, yeah. it just isn't funded. And somewhere like Endometriosis UK gets a fraction of money towards a charity compared to other charities that are similar figures. So I don't think you can ignore the fact that it's a female-only disease, but it actually affects everybody. It affects the health service, education system, everyone around you. It's not. It happens to the woman on their own, but it, everyone around them is affected. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that started to make me quite cross. But I then look back on why, as women, we don't talk about women's pain, how we're that's sort of indoctrinated from quite early on by other women to us as well. You know, my mum and grandmother would say, that's what it's like, I'm really sorry. And my mum is as feminist as you get. <laughs> but that's what, she, I think for her, it was like, it was an era of feminism in the 70s where it was like, we don't <coughs> talk about that, though, because that's going to make us vulnerable and it's going to be something they can get us on, say. Yeah. Um, so let's not talk about that. But it's something that happens. But you do everything that you always did, you're fine. But mine wasn't just periods. Mine was a disease as well. So I think part of it also, that partly led to my delaying going back to doctors, because it was like, you've just got them badly, it's just bad. 
The thing that comes up over and over in your book is people saying, oh, painful periods are normal. Yeah, which and, yeah. Uh, just has to be abolished, which, that idea. Yeah, it's, um, and, and so many women just are in horrible amounts of pain, mm. and they've been told that because they're a woman, that's just something they have to expect and live with. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think um, it's an interesting time right now. I mean, these are interesting times in many bad ways, <laughs> but also I think... Some of it is, um, it, it relates to the Me Too thing for me, because it's, um, it's sort of, if we're going to listen to women's, young women's stories and take what they say seriously, we're going to have to make some changes. And it's like, things have been like this, but now we are listening to it, and it's getting some, these stories are getting some um, consequences in the real world. And I think it, this is all connected and hopefully means things are getting a bit better and that our books are out. I mean, and they're not the only books. No. And actually that makes me think how brave you both are to not only speak about it day to day to doctors and your friends, but to have written books based on your own personal experience. Um, and maybe brave is the wrong word actually, but I think... I'll take it. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't, I, I don't want it to be patronizing, but I do think opening up personally about things and then having to come to event after event like this one and talk about your own personal experience. I mean, do you struggle with that at all or are you just happy to be able to be um, talking about it? I struggle with getting really exhausted. <laughs> yeah. But um, but for me, it's actually a huge relief to be talking about it or mainly to feel like people are listening to me when I'm talking about it. Like, thank God I feel so much better talking about it. And I feel like if that can be helpful, that's amazing. But for me, even just for me, even if it was like my experience was 100% unique, it's a huge relief to to talk about it and mm. put it out in the world and take a little bit of space. Mm. How about you, Anna? Uh, I think initially when I first started to write about it, I felt quite self-indulgent and exposing. And then I felt you had to put your money where your mouth was. If you're going to be cross about this and want it to change you've, you've got to talk about it so I just had to um, and now no because I think I I got control about how I told the story rather than I like um, having to say it I got control about how I talked about it and that was really important to me privately before the book was even a thing so with partners and with new friends and with colleagues as an actor I didn't tell anyone but my agent and the immediate people that needed to know because I was living a relatively normal life and I could manage it. So for me, it did feel like this secret, but it was my choice to talk about that. And so it didn't feel like I had to, it was what I wanted to do. So it's new to me, talking about it publicly, but I feel, why wasn't I before? And I think that I, I keep doing that, I keep going, why wasn't I talking about this? This is 23 years, <laughs> this is crazy. Uh, and a lot of my friends who've read the book have said they didn't realise any of this has happened. So I realised how little I was talking about it before, um, which I don't think was a patriarchal thing. I think it was just that was my way of dealing with it, was to go, that's happening there, and the rest of my life is this. I think I'm healthier from a mental health point of view now that it's all part of the same thing, and they don't have to be separate. It's good yeah. for me, I think. OK, well, it's been an absolute pleasure to have both of you and speak to you about these books. And thank you for being such a great audience today. And I think all we have left to do is just give a big round of applause. Yeah, Next 
Next up is an excerpt from our interview with Ayelet Gundagoshen and Rosie Price from the panel called Me Too in Fiction. Octavia, do you want to introduce Ayelet and then I'll introduce Rosie and then we'll get started. Sounds good. So Ayelet Gundagoshen, who's sitting right next to me, um, is an award-winning novelist and clinical psychologist in Israel. Her novels have been translated into 14 languages. She's an occasional correspondent for the BBC, Time magazine and the Israeli media. Her latest novel, Liar, which she's joining us to talk about, is about a young girl who falsely accuses a minor celebrity of sexual assault and the ripple effect of that one lie. And we're really pleased to have you here, Ayelet. Do you want to introduce Rosie? Yes. So um, Rosie Price was born in Gloucestershire, where we are right now, (laughs) close to here, as I hear, and lives in London now. Her first novel, What Red Was, is about the friendship between Kate and Max, Kate's entanglement with his wealthy and repressed family, I think you would say, and the way her life is shattered when she's raped at their family home, Um, but also sort of how she how she deals with the aftermath of that experience. Um, and I think it's a really subtle, nuanced, and really gripping novel as well. So we're very, very excited to speak to both of you here today. To start, this panel is called Me Too in Fiction. And I, I am sure that both of you have been asked very, very often whether your book was a response to Me Too. And if you think the response to your book has changed in the context of the last two years? Yeah. Um, Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, It's something that's come up, but fascinating. Well, for me, it was fascinating because I was writing the novel while Me Too happened. I'd finished the first draft and I just quit my job in order to try and sell it to a publisher. And... Me Too kind of broke when I was just getting used to a freelance lifestyle of writing and tutoring and doing other things. And it was quite overwhelming. Um, It was kind of suddenly these stories that hadn't been told for years and years were all coming out in one big rush. And I think definitely one of the central threads of the novel is the agency that um, a survivor of an assault has and how that's taken away both in the assault, but also in the storytelling. So um, in the te- in the way that the assault is narrated and whose story it is and who has the right to tell it. Um, so I found when I was sort of working through the later drafts, I was kind of asking myself that question over and over again of whether a story gets lost in this kind of cacophony of noise, which I think was how Me Too first materialized and then kind of crystallized into something later. Ayelet, how have you dealt with questions about Me Too and and do you think your novel was in part a response to the movement? Um, I started writing The Liar before Me Too started. I started writing it in Tel Aviv five years ago. And when I just started writing it, there was no Me Too, and and Israel is a very patriarchic country. So I did ask myself while writing it, even before Me Too, am I a bad feminist because I'm writing a story about a girl making up a story about a sexual assault? And I live in a country, in a society where for years when women complained about sexual assault, the first reaction to that would be to say she's making that up. 
I know if it's here the same, but in Israel, if a woman complains about a sexual assault, then the first assumption would be that she's an attention seeker or that she, she's making it up for the, the gain because there's so much gain in being sexually assaulted. So I was writing this novel about a woman making up a story about a sexual assault, and I was hunted by the possibility that maybe I'm writing something that undermines a cause that is very dear to my heart because I'm a woman living in a patriarch society. And I just became a mother when I wrote The Liar. Um, and I was, it, my first child is, is a girl. So I remember when, when I wrote the novel, I thought, I don't know anything about my girl yet because she was just born, but I already know one thing about her. And that is that I, I don't know what kind of music she will like or what will she want to study, but I do know that if I bring her up in Israel, then at some moment in her life she will be sexually harassed because every me and all of my girls were some moment in our life sexually either assaulted or harassed. And I know this is the fate of, of a girl in Israel today. And then I thought, what am I doing as a mother if I'm writing a novel that in a way affects the, you will say, like the weather, the climate of, of the society that my girl is going to, to live in. So I had, even before Me Too started, I was sort of struggling with those questions while I was trying to write the story. It was almost as if I had to first answer these questions before I'd be able to sit down and, and just get into writing the, the novel itself. You've spoken in, in other interviews about wanting to understand characters that are considered monstrous by society. Um, and I, I think that's a really interesting thing about fiction in general, right? That, that it, it offers us a space where we can get inside the minds of people that we maybe wouldn't actually want to get inside the mind of in reality or be close to. Um, and is that something that you were consciously exploring here? And then also, Rosie, I wonder if you have any thoughts about that. But let's start with you, Ayala. In the case of The Liar, it was very much what initiated the writing because it started from a, a real story that I heard. Um, I was eating lunch with a friend of mine, and she's a public defense attorney. And she came to lunch very happy and excited because she was um, representing an illegal migrant um, from Eritrea. Um, and she was representing him because he didn't have money um, to, to be, um, how do you say? To, for, for him to have representation. Yes, yeah, so you have a public defense attorney. And he was um, charged of uh, raping an Israeli girl, an Israeli citizen. It was a very high-profile case in the first place because people from the right used it to talk against uh, illegal migrants and they're raping our daughters. And then my friend came so excited to lunch because she finally found a way to prove that the woman was lying. So she came to lunch all excited, saying, I, I can prove this now and he won't go to prison and this woman is, is a psychopath and, and she called her even worse names. And even though she was so happy about it, I sat there listening to it and I thought, I'm happy for my friend, I'm definitely happy for, for the, the guy who was accused, but I'm also thinking about this woman and I'm thinking about maybe she's not a psychopath, maybe it's too easy to call her a psychopath. It's either today, we either say there are no women who make up stories, I believe all women no matter what, or we say if somebody is making up a story, mm -hmm. 
then she's she must be crazy, she must be insane, she must be a psychopath, she's not part of us because we don't do such a thing. We don't lie, we don't say things which get out of hand, we never started something that became bigger and bigger and we weren't able to stop it. And, and that what initiated writing the lie because I thought I came back from lunch to my studio and I kept asking myself this question, like what kind of woman can do such a thing and could it be that any, under any circumstances I would be able to do such a thing or am I absolutely sure that my little girl would never be able to do such a thing? So I think when you're haunted by a question long enough, this question becomes a novel. Rosie, how do you feel about uh, the idea of exploring monstrosity in fiction? And do you think that in your novel you were... Because yours is written in the third person, mm. so you, you have this omniscient view, and yeah. it means, as the reader, you do have to get inside the minds of, of the assaulter as mm. well as the person who experiences the assault. Like, how was that for you? It felt really important to tell it in that way, um, in part because I think if you kind of distance yourself from things that appear monstrous, then you're never going to understand them um, or never going to be able to recognize things in yourself that might also be um, you might never learn to interrogate your own behavior and become a better person yourself if people are unwilling to look at um, behavior that they don't agree with um, so it was really important from that point of view but also the wonderful thing that fiction does is allow you to kind of occupy several different viewpoints that are all conflicting at the same time and kind of give credence to all of them I mean there's a set of reasons which I don't think anyone would think were justifiable for which this character acts in the way he does but they are reasons nonetheless for him or they are at least a cause and effect chain reaction for him that sends him down this path so looking at those reasons was really important for me because it's not just the case that some people want to hurt other people there there are just kind of a, a toxic set of um, circumstances that can lead to these kinds of situations in which people make bad decisions and abuse power that they have. One of the things I was thinking as I read both of these books was also that you're both writing about things that I think an author has to be quite careful mm. um, with and I think both of these novels are written very carefully um, and I wanted to ask you if you had more about the kind of writing process, if you had rules for yourself, if there, if there were things that, especially around really tricky things like accusation or an actual assault that you wanted to avoid writing about or that you felt that you really needed to get across with your language, um, and if that was ever difficult for you while you were doing that. Um, I, I think that part came in the editing the kind of being careful about how maybe how florid your language gets or I think when I was first drafting I was probably very unrestrained because I was just trying to express I was just kind of trying to get it all out in some kind of order and structure um, but yeah when I went through and started editing I was amazed by how much I stripped back and how much you could take out and still have the um, 
it was almost like in the more violent scenes um, or the more upsetting scenes, the more you took out, the more effective it felt to me. Um, and I think you really need distance from it in order to see get that balance right. So I kind of had to put it away and um, I think sending it to my sending the book to my well printing it out or sending it to my kindle was a really good way of doing that because then i was kind of reading it as if someone else has, had written it and i could kind of see where i was overreaching and saying to the reader please understand that this is important and you kind of you kind of recoil from that it's kind of cringy if you're a reader so yeah i did find th but i think that's that's what you learn about yourself as you're editing yourself um and letting the kind of facts of the interactions and the conversations and what's actually happening speak for themselves rather than shoving it down the reader's throat as kind of this person feels this way because of this um mm. so yeah i had a lot of fun with that but it was almost like the first draft was subtext of everything i wanted the reader to feel and then i had to kind of work my way back and be like oh i need this scene to make someone feel this and imagine it almost like a film or something so that it was kind of taking away all the really obvious signposts. How about you, Ayelat? I didn't want to be careful when, when, I, when I'm in the writing process. I feel it's exactly different from driving. When you drive, you're supposed to be careful and look to the sides all the time. And I think when you write, you really shouldn't look to the sides all the time. Because I think if you do that, then you won't be able to write one word. So I went to a huge struggle before I started writing The Liar. I had to ask myself if I feel as a mother, as a woman, you know, as a feminist, that I can write this novel. And once I got to the final decision, then I just sat here, there, and, and wrote. And I, there was like a huge no entry sign to my mother, to my grandmother, who is dead, but she still hunts me because she she grew me up. So whenever I write, she's been dead for six years, but she's always there asking me, are you sure you want to write this? Are you sure you want to say that really this word? Um, and, and I just have to kick everyone out in order to be able to do this thing as, as I think it should be written. But when, when I wrote this, I, when I finished writing The Liar, I thought that I do want to go back into the manuscript and put inside to represent the real statistics, at least in Israel, of, of um, women being assaulted. The statistic is one of one. So um, I did want to go back afterwards and to make sure that each one of the female characters beside the protagonist has a sort of a backstory um, that represents the real statistics of what does it mean to be a woman in Israel. And this is something that I did afterwards, because while I was writing it, I was just focusing on this girl and the thing that happened to her. And I did get many questions about if it's careful or if it's not careful. I had an, a male journalist in Israel telling me that he thought I should have waited a year before publishing the novel, because he said he shouldn't have published it in the year of Me Too, because this is undermining we, Me Too. You should have waited for a year. And I thought, you know, it's always great to have male journalists telling you what a woman should or shouldn't write about. <laughs> and, and I also thought about the idea that 
You know, I consider Me Too the most important revolution of, of my time. I, I really think there's a chance that my girl wouldn't have to go through the things that my generation went through. But I think revolutions are not measured by the question of, I mean, do you bound literature into what a woman or what a feminist should or should not write about? I think I always feel very dangerous when I start mm. getting those, those remarks. I think... Because you would never give that to a man. You would never say to a man, you can't write about a man killing his landlord, like crime and punishment, because people might think that all men are murderers. Or you can't write about a man um, doing a pedophile act like Lolita, because people might think that all men are pedophiles. But when a woman writes a story about a woman making up a sexual assault, then people might assume that all women... Are, are fake accusers, which is, wh why would you assume that if you've seen one, you've seen them all? The mere assumption that one woman represents yeah. all women is a chauvinist assumption. And, and I feel that, in a way, this is just another field where it's so much easier to be a man and to write literature. I also feel, it, as a Jewish author, that I'm entitled to write, you know, about Jewish characters be, doing very bad things Because, I mean, I don't think that if you want to be against anti-Semitism, it means that all Jews are sacred. And I don't think if you want to be against, I mean, chauvinism, it means that all women are, you know, um, victims or, or brave um, heroes. I, I think we deserve to have the diversity inside of us. Absolutely. And yeah. if the movement was going to be derailed by one exploration of yeah. a false accusation, then it wouldn't have the legs that it has, you know. But that's the thing, isn't it? Like, as women, women who, who have lived in the world as it is currently understand that. And maybe people who have been outside of that experience, maybe because of the luck of their gender identity, maybe not, but they won't necessarily see that, which is why I think it's a, you know, a great book, an important book. I wanted to end by just asking you, because I think one of the questions that surrounded all of these questions we've been asking is, the morality of fiction, you know, is fiction, is writing fiction is, and is reading fiction a moral act and is it, is it an ethical act? And I wonder if what you both think about that. That's an interesting question. Um, I think there's, <laughs> I don't know, the one, I, I, kind of shy away from the suggestion that books are supposed to be didactic. I don't like the suggestion that books are supposed to be didactic or supposed to... I mean, it's like what we were saying earlier. It's, it's about offering alternative points of view. And I, I do feel like there's something inherently humane about wanting to go and look at the world from someone else's point of view, whether as a reader or a writer. And I think that fiction allows you to introduce ambiguity where there's the temptation to polarize and I think that's if it has a moral purpose then it's to kind of create confusion and tension and um, to muddy the waters and then to allow people to make up their own minds about things so it's moral in that sense. Ayala what do you think? Um, I very much agree with what Rosie said I think I had this experience um, last week. I was walking with, I have a little boy, he's three years old, and we were walking in the street and somebody was crying. And he looked at the, the other child that was crying 
And he asked me, why is he crying? And I said, I don't know. And then he tried to understand why is he crying. And he said, maybe he wants a teddy bear. And then he gave a list of ideas which were all driven from his own world of reasons that would make him cry. But he said it about the other child. Mm -hmm. And I looked at it and I thought, this is the beginning of empathy. This mm -hmm. is the moment when you stop in, in the middle of the street because you wonder why somebody who is not you is feeling pain and you start to feel the gap between you and the other person mm -hmm. with words. You start to feel it with stories and these stories are, are, are projections of, of his own needs. But these are his first steps into the world of, into the idea of, of somebody else. And maybe one day he'll be capable of making up reasons rather than, you know, the teddy bear, which is actually his teddy bear. So. I really think there is something moral in literature, not by saying this novel uh, is good for the struggle and this novel is bad for the struggle. I agree with Rosie that there's something humanistic in literature because it's about trying to imagine the world through eyes which are not just your own eyes. And, and I think that's the, the basic mechanism of empathy. It's to be willing to cry for somebody else or, or to care for a character that speaks a language that you don't speak or lives in a period that you weren't even born in. And so I really feel that this is something important in a way to be doing. I mean, not just when I write, I also feel it when I read. I feel lucky to be able to, to leave myself for a moment and to be able to relate to other people and then come back to me. I think that's a very positive note to end on. Ayelet and Rosie, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you today. And I think you'll all join me in thanking them for being here. Thank you, Thank you very much. This is Larry Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, back here with Octavia Bright, and we are coming at you this month from the Cheltenham Literature Festival, where we are the podcast in residence this year. We have a special treat for the second part of the show, which is a whole bunch of book recommendations from authors who were at the festival over the weekend that we were staying there. So here they are. Enjoy. <laughs> Max Porter, how great to see you. How are Hi, you nice to see you. I'm okay, thank you. Um, so you're a guest curator here at Cheltenham this year. What does that mean? It means I did six events or something and they let me do whatever I wanted. They were incredibly generous. Uh, I did a 
I did my Lanny event with musicians, folk musicians, and we create this incredible kind of folk drone that I read against. Uh, so it makes the book kind of semi-improvisatory. And then I did a thing called the English Soundwood, where I invited other writers to join in with that premise. So we open up this mythological character and let him roam the whole country. So we had like tabloid newspapers and incredible images of life in this country while we all read at the same time and then and then dead papa toothwort the character brings the the guest authors forward to perform solos uh, so i had montaza mary the somalian poet rachel allen uh, niven govindan and then the music changes every time the speaker changes so we had this sort of incredible sort of live social documentary portrait of england that sounds is, rad it was wicked i think the audience were a bit baffled but <laughs> you know the 20 percent that loved it really loved it I and that's, that's that's how change occurs absolutely um, I've done loads of good stuff. Yesterday we did an Odyssey study day where we had lots of different authors talking about the Odyssey and um, Alice Oswald, who we invited a long time ago and just assumed wasn't, just suddenly said last Friday, yeah, I'll come. And she just read from nobody yesterday, recited from nobody her new collection yesterday. And that, you know, that's a, w- a wonder of the world, seeing Alice read. Every time I see her read, I, I can't get my head around the power of that. Uh, and then I'm done. And tonight I'm just interviewing Ali Smith. And she's agreed to be interviewed in a in a fun game format. So we're chucking sugar cubes into flower pots because I've got this theory that people think and speak better when they're engaged in a slightly competitive hand-eye coordination activity. And also maybe sugar. <laughs> Thanks for nodding politely. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm on board. I'm yeah, on board. Dear reader, she's nodding. She's <laughs> nodding. Um, yeah, so it's been cool. That sounds really brilliant and yeah. way more uh, engaged and exciting than people might imagine for a literary festival, right? I hope so. I mean, my feeling is that in the same way as if we buy lots of books and keep publishing books uh, for the people that already buy them and forget to put as much of our energy and resources into literacy, then in 10 years' time no one will be reading books and this will all be in for vain. And it's ex- extraordinary to me that the literature community and the culture industry as a whole don't figure that out more. Like libraries closing, literacy rates plummeting, funding being slashed for literary projects. What, we, we can forget about whether the book's got nice finishes or gold foil or whether it's got a pick film for women's literary fiction book clubs. It's all just a nonsense. It's all bollocks. So... Um, why, why was I telling you that? On that very cheery note. <laughs> um, I want to ask you a question. Have you read anything recently that you would really recommend? Yes. I'd like to recommend uh, another of the Cheltenham Festival guest curators is a guy called Anthony Anaxaguru, who is a British-born, British, uh, Cypriot poet. And it's, his book is called After the Formalities. You may have seen Anthony walking around. He is fit as fuck. <laughs> And, uh, and an incredibly nice bloke, and 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 his poetry is an absolute revelation to me because he combined like the, it's the holy grail as far as I'm concerned. Like he was a spoken word poet, so the work has this energy in it which can only come from the oral tradition. Like a bit like I was saying with Alice Oswald yesterday, his poems walk around the room with you when you're reading them, and it's very hybrid. It's multi multi text. You know, he's got bits of all sorts of stuff going on on, on the page. It's, it's relatively experimental. Um, but he also has this incredible intellect which is in this collection tailored to this question of British identity now uh, much, many of the poems are about that and this kind of interesting idea of the Cypriot identity as this kind of anomaly this fluid thing in, in European like you're not, you're not the white European but nor are you the, the other you know racially you're very fluid and he addresses that in terms of his own parenting and his experiences and indeed how to write poetry it's an absolute tour de force it's called After the Formalities 
published by Pend in the Margins, and I'd really recommend it. Candice Patty Williams, it's great to meet you. Thanks for coming to say hi to us here at Literary Friction. Hi! Are you having a good time at Cheltenham Festival? Yes, very much so. I got here earlier today and I've managed to see two talks um, and buy a ring, which was nice. I mean, great shout. Thank you what very much. What does it much. look like? It's like, the, I mean, you can't, it's this one. Oh, it's wonderful. It's nice, it's £40. Yeah. Oh my God, it's so a nice, isn't very it? Uh, like textured gold band. It's cool, guys. It's like very cob- cool. Like, co- like a cobbled road. Yeah, very good. Excellent. Um, Would you tell us about a book you've read recently that you would like to recommend, please? Yes, um, I would love to recommend Surge by Jay Bernard, which is a poetry collection that focuses on the new crossfires of 1981. um, And it's the most beautiful and searing and sad thing that I've ever read. I think Jay is the most tremendous writer. Amazing. That sounds really fascinating. When did it did it come out? Or is it coming out soon? So it's published by Chatter Windus, and it came out a few months ago. Okay, fantastic. Um, and I was also really lucky to see Jay perform a selection of the poetry um, to like a sort of cinema backdrop um, of what had gone on. It was incredibly immersive and um, moving. Yeah, it sounds incredibly powerful. Fabulous. Yeah. Thanks, Candice. We'll look out for that. My pleasure. Have a great festival. And you. Sinead Gleason, it is so great to see you again. And you, lovely to see you since I saw you earlier this year. So first of all, can you tell us a little bit about your impressions of Cheltenham Literature Festival? I had not anticipated the size. It's absolutely massive. And what is also hugely impressive, I can't get over the size of the crowds. Every single event is either sold out or packed and full of people. And I came out of my own event earlier and saw just hundreds of people all queuing for events or signing situations in the tents. So it's very, very big. It's really well programmed. It's really diverse. There's been great pairings. Uh, the standard of chairing that I've seen so far has been brilliant. So yeah, very, very impressive. It's, it's my first time here and I just loved it. What's been your favourite event so far? I went to a great event yesterday on the art of the short story, which was Chris Power, who has been writing about the short story for years in The Guardian and published his own collection, Mothers, and Nicole Flattery, who published a collection called Show Them a Good Time, and Sarah Hall, who I met and then gushed a lot at because I'm such a huge fan of her writing. Um, And Andrew Holgate from The Sunday Times opened the event by saying to all of them, so you're all writing novels now, is that because you can't make any money from short stories? Which I thought was a great opening question on a short story panel. But it was a really good, interesting event on, you know, what short stories can I think people think sometimes they're just a kind of scaled back version of the novel when they're actually a very different kind of space for writing, I think. Great. And could you please, if you don't mind, recommend a book that you've read recently that you'd like to tell people about? Absolutely. I have just finished and been blown away by The Undying, uh, a modern meditation on illness by Anne Boyer. I've loved her work for years and she's been published by small presses. Uh, She's a poet, she's an essayist, she's a huge thinker. I mean, I I think of her as quite a philosopher in some ways. And this book's been published with Alan Lane, so I think she's going to find more readers. But it's basically, in short, about a diagnosis of triple negative breast cancer, which is the worst you can get. So she talks not just about the illness, but about what happens to your body in treatment, how the treatment itself can kill you with that kind of diagnosis, but also about the politics and um, capitalism of, of getting sick, especially in America, where she talks about going to give a lecture and Walt Whitman um, still with her surgical bags attached to her chest after a double mastectomy because she they kicked her out of the hospital. So it's a very furious book. It's a, it talks about the gendering of, of medicine uh, and it kind of makes you think about being alive and how we're all very lucky about when things happen or don't happen to our bodies, which is something that I write about and I, I found a lot of connection. But even if you don't care about memoirs about illness, you'd find there's a lot to think about in this book. I'm still thinking about it and I finished it about two weeks ago. It's incredibly deep, really infuriating, um, but 
brilliant and po- poetic. Her use of language is like nobody else. She's incredible. I think I read an excerpt in the New Yorker. And That's it, the, it, there was an excerpt in the New Yorker, and it, she's it. It's just it, right from the start. She's a really good way of reeling you into a subject, uh, and and you're very embedded before you even know where you are. But uh, I just find her a, a colossal kind of thinker and writer, but really accessible uh, as well, and saying a lot of important things that need to be said. I think. I'm desperate to read that book. I'm so glad Do you it. recommended it. Do it. So finally, can you remind everyone of the title of your book? My book is called Constellations, Reflections from Life, and it's a collection of essays about bodies and illness and art and painters and DNA, blood. There's a lot of blood in it. Um, <laughs> religion, politics, all sorts of stuff. What um, a pitch. I would agree with it. Right, thank you very much. Juana Odebang, so great to meet you. And I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for talking to us. Yeah. Um, so what book are you here to, to promote? Um, so I'm a poet. Um, I mostly make my working albums, but I'm here as part of Seven, um, Seven at Seventy, so which is an initiative, I think, that's um, by Cheltenham Festival, where they partner with other festivals, about seven other festivals around the world. Um, and those festivals nominate writers to come here. Um, so I was I was nominated by a festival called Aki Art and Books Festival, which is about seven years old, funny enough, Amazing. in Lagos. Um, and so I've been, been a part of it for the past seven years. So I'm always like moderating or showcasing my work there as well. So, um, so we had a reading and um, some people read from their books, some people read from their poems. I read um, two poems. Um, and then, of course, I also had a poetry performance in the evening yesterday at Chong Fu, which was amazing. Did it go well? Went so well because it was um, the musicians improvise with you on stage. So it's like a whole like cosmic alchemy that's going on. So between you performing poems and actually telling them the kind of sounds that you want. So it was just fantastic. That sounds really cool. Yeah. Um, what would you like to recommend to our listeners today? Just a book that you've enjoyed lately. So the book I enjoyed lately is called um, A Particular Kind of Black Man by Tokwe Folari, who is a Nigerian-American writer. He won the Kane Prize, um, I think, in 2013. Um, and so the book is about, um, it's people say it's an immigrant story, but it's about um, a young Nigerian family growing up in Utah. Interesting. Yes, exactly. What a culture uh, shock that must be. <laughs> exactly. So it's really this really exciting book because it's part, it's I think they call it autofiction now. So it's part part of it starts as autobiography and then it kind of switches and changes. So it's dealing with this um, family who's growing up in Utah and their father's unable to sort of keep a steady job. And they move around a lot and the, the mother um, is also dealing with um, mental health problems as well. Um, but then it's really also a book about identity and trying to find and reconstruct identity. So at some points during the book, um, it moves into the second person and the third person. And there's also some kind of level of like diarying that, that's happening, journaling that's happening, and also reconstruction that's happening towards the end as well. So it's a really brilliant book. It sounds amazing. Um, and it's also, it's, it's also heartbreaking, but so beautiful. And um, as in, it's, it feels lyrical as well. The prose is quite, has a lot of breath to it and just very sort of emotionally gripping. Sounds fab. Thank you so much, Wana. You're welcome. That's all the time we have for today at Cheltenham. Thanks to all our interviewees. 
to all the authors who we accosted in the green room and gave us their recommendations, to Lindsay at Cheltenham Literature Festival and to Eddie Knight for editing and music. Literary Fiction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and to stream on ncs.live. You can check us out on Twitter and Instagram. You can get in touch with us on email litfiction at gmail.com. And thank you for having us, Cheltenham. We had an absolute blast. We really did. We will be back next month for our show with one of my faves, Elizabeth Strout. Until then, I'm Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright, and this is Literary Friction. <laughs>